Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. My name is Adam Homey. I am your host, and I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and join us today. We are business creators. We are entrepreneurs, small business owners, local business owners. We're marketing and business coaches, consultants, and mentors. We're the business creators who help others grow their businesses, and we also have the do-it-yourselfers who like to have your own hands on the levers as you market and grow. If you are one or more of the above, and in fact, many of our listeners who tune in every week are all of the above, please take a moment, explore episodes, discover how we help you win at the game of business and marketing at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. Also, be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes. Every five-star rating is greatly appreciated and helps us help more business creators just like you. And when you subscribe to us in iTunes at Business Creators Radio Show, over 190 episodes as of this writing will be available for your immediate perusal on a broad variety of topics related to business creators. Now, speaking of topics, what we're going to talk about today is something that crossed my desk a few weeks ago that when I first saw it, I thought was very, very interesting. It's the idea of not letting the 80-20 principle mislead you. Now, many of our listeners know what the 80-20 principle is. It's the idea that uh, you'll get 80% of your results from 20% of your effort or 20% of your work. It can also apply to getting 80% of the productivity from 20% of your people, um, 80% of your return from 20% of your investment. It's just the whole idea of the 80-20. Now, we're taught that in middle school. We're taught it in high school. We're taught it in college. We're taught it in uh, business school. We're taught it in MBA programs. We're taught it in every entrepreneurial program that's out there. But it can be misleading, and we're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. And to help us understand that, I am happy to introduce you to a gentleman who I've had a great amount of joy getting to know here in the past few minutes, John Vespasian. John, welcome aboard. Hi, uh, Adam. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you for being here. Uh, the honor is all mine. Uh, so first of all, let's tell the audience about John. John Vespasian is the author of eight books about rational living, including When Everything Fails, Try This, Rationality is the Way to Happiness, The Philosophy of Builders, How to Build a Great Future with the Pieces from Your Past, The Ten Principles of Rational Living, Rational Living, Rational Working, How to Make Winning Moves When Things Are Falling Apart, Consistency, The Key to Permanent Stress Relief, On Becoming Unbreakable, how normal people become extraordinarily self-confident and thriving in difficult times, 12 lessons from ancient Greece to improve your life today, which is John's most recent book. So as we can see, John is very prolific, and he has shared a lot on the idea of rationality and growing your business and how do you become resilient and strong. But what I'd like to do now before we dive into the subject matter here is for those of you who are listening who are just getting a chance to know John, uh, here's my first question for you, John. Uh, I read off and I, you know, your, your list of books, and that's all very impressive and everything else. Uh, what we'd like you to do is uh, just tell us a little bit more in your own words about your own personal journey or your business journey that has led you to where we are now and how you start business creators from the intersection of your brilliance and passion. 
So in other words, a little bit about yes. your personal story and how you arrived here. Yes, um, I have uh, developed a commercial career for many years, for decades. Um, for decades, I have been a voracious reader of uh, sales books, business books, psychology books, uh, personal development, uh, philosophy. And um, at a certain point, and we are talking uh, 2007, 2008, I grew uh, very unhappy, very dissatisfied uh, with the kind of books I was reading because I found them, most of them, very superficial, uh, contradictory, uh, vague, are uh, not really based on fact. They're based on little uh, stories, usually personal stories of the author, but they are not really applicable to um, to the public, to the to the reader. So I started to write uh, the kind of books, the kind of books I want to read, and these are books about personal development, very much based on logic, based on history, and um, based on reality. And I have been doing this uh, since 2008, and um, I just write the kind of books I want to read. And I'm happy other people like them, but basically um, I started to write uh, books out of frustration. Right. Well, I can appreciate. I can certainly appreciate that. So, um, so tell me. Uh, you know, we talk about shortcuts to success, and we've also heard the principle of leapfrogging and uh, finding the shortest line between A and B, where sometimes we skip a few steps or. Uh, we look for ways to just get there a lot faster. Now, why do most shortcuts to success fail, in your opinion? Because they don't have uh, a long-term perspective. And um, uh, we uh, human beings, especially in the 21st century, um, we laugh all kind of tricks. We laugh uh, these, um, these hacks uh, to, get, uh, to get faster to our goals. But the problem is that uh, most of them are very superficial. They, they are going to help you for a day or for a couple of days, but um, they have no uh, impact on your long-term vision. Uh, this is like, uh, I don't know, getting a hamburger made uh, one minute faster, but the question right. is whether you should eat a hamburger or not. I mean, that's usually the question. <laughs> so these kind of uh, hacks, um, they can be often very misleading and very, very often counterproductive. Let's break that down a bit because you said something that I thought was interesting. Let me make sure I heard you right. Uh, now, I used to work in fast food. I used to work in a burger joint. I know, kind of ironic because these days I'm vegan. So I, the ironies of life. But I worked in a fast food joint for five years, and I'm very familiar with the concept of flipping burgers. And uh, I uh, still remember to this day some of the techniques that we used to so we say make the burgers cook a little bit faster when things got really busy and also ways to make the burgers cook a little slower when things were really slow so we didn't waste as much product. So what you're telling me is, yeah, we can cook that burger a little bit faster and, you know, we could, you know, turn it from six minutes to five minutes and it was perfectly safe to eat that burger. It was still well done. It was still juicy and it was still a good burger. But what you're saying is we should ask ourselves, should we be eating the burger? Did I hear that right? Yes, exactly. I think um, uh, it has much more impact on your success or happiness in the long term, uh, whether you have a, a, the right strategic vision, whether you know um, uh, your goals or at least your direction, and you move in that direction, and you will make uh, many mistakes. Uh, you will not be perfectly efficient. 
all the time. Uh, sometimes you will be uh, discouraged. But if you get uh, your direction right, and you get your vision right in the long term, and you're going to be uh, developing your business or your life for decades, and we're talking decades and sometimes uh, 40, uh, 50 years, then you will eventually get it right. And this is a million times more important than flipping the, big, the, bur the burgers uh, one minute earlier or one minute later, which is okay. It's okay, but this is not, I think, the, the main point uh, of the philosophy of success and happiness. You know, uh, I've, writ I've written about something here, John, and that I think may be related to this, is, you know, we sometimes look at our to-do lists, and uh, we, I encourage people to ask the question, do you need to do it at all? Uh, some people are looking for shortcuts, some people are looking for how to turn five steps into three steps, and I see something on my to-do list, and my very first question is, do we need to do it at all? That's perfectly fair. I mean, I also have a to-do list, and I, I, I use uh, an app for the, for the phone, uh, like many people. But I also have a list of uh, my long-term uh, goals. And this list uh, overrides everything. And very often I have to compare my uh, to-do list of the day uh, with my long-term uh, goals. And uh, many times I can say, okay, I can really uh, strike 25% uh, of the to-do list items because they are not linked to the main goals. And this is the problem with right. hacks and with little tricks. Um, you don't keep the perspective in time. You don't keep the long-term vision. And this is absolutely crucial. It's the most important thing. Yeah, and as I think about this some more, you've really got my mind working here. I love when the guests challenge me. This is great. Um, I'm also rem reminding myself that uh, I also use the same principle when we talk about hey, I'm the business owner, I need to outsource stuff, I need to get a team, I need to not be doing this, that, or the other, I need to hire somebody to do it. And I say, that's well and good, now let's ask the question, does it need to be done at all? Well, I mean, would not doing it perhaps help you towards your vision? And I think if I'm hearing you correctly, that's kind of where we're headed, and I like it if so. Yes, indeed. And let me, let me give you an example. Um, right. It's an example from one of my books. It's an example from history, uh, which I think is very relevant to this uh, to this conversation. And it's the story of um, uh, of a painter, uh, a, um, a very famous uh, painter from uh, from Venice, um, who has uh, paintings um, in um, in many museums. And uh, well, just just uh, I will tell you the story shortly because I think it's very very interesting. And this guy, um, uh, he became extremely wealthy. His name was Canaletto. He lived in the uh, 17th, 18th century. Uh, he became wealthy because he figured out that uh, tourists in Venice, they wanted to buy um, uh, scenes of Venice. So he started to paint um, uh, um, in, in a sort of um, Japanese uh, factory he created in Venice. He started to produce these paintings like, like cookies. Uh, he made a fortune within a few, few years because he developed a very, very fast way to, to make these paintings. And now comes the story, because at a certain point, the guy was focused on his, uh, on his little tricks, his productivity. He became very productive very fast, but he lost uh, sight of his strategy. At a certain point, uh, he made a huge uh, strategic mistake, because he thought, well, the only thing I need to do now is to get closer to my customers. So he moved uh, his operation from, the, from Venice to the United Kingdom, where most of his customers were based, he took uh, his apprentices, he took his, uh, his technology, his methodology, and he settled down in the UK, 
and uh, he went completely bankrupt. Within two years, he didn't manage to sell uh, one single painting because he wanted to paint uh, scenes of the UK, which uh, British people would, couldn't care less. So in the end, after realizing that he made a huge mistake, he was very efficient, but he lost sight of the strategy. So in the end, Canaletto went back to Venice. He settled down again in Venice. He started his business from scratch, and he, um, he again, he made a second fortune. But the, the story is that uh, he was very efficient. He was focused on little tricks, but from the moment that he lost sight of the strategy, and it was the strategy that was making him successful, uh, he destroyed his business. Right. So if I heard you correctly, he was, print, he was painting scenes from Venice, which are the types of things that people in the United Kingdom wanted to buy. But once he thought, oh, all my buyers in the United Kingdom, so let me just go move to the UK. So now he's surrounded by scenes in the United Kingdom. And they're saying, eh, I don't want to buy that. I, I see that every day. I want scenes from Venice. But since he's not in Venice, he's kind of uh, uh, put the expediency of being closer to his customers geographically um, at the expense of the strategy of being able to sell beautiful Venetian scenes. Did I get that right? Yeah, that happens uh, to people every day. That uh, we happen to all of us. We get uh, entangled in the details and we lose sight of the of the main goal. Uh, we forget uh, what makes us successful because uh, we want to be uh, more efficient, more efficient, more efficient. And um, uh, you see, uh, it doesn't work. And this is the main purpose of my books: uh, to make readers a little bit more rational by showing them many examples of uh, people who have been successful or unsuccessful, uh, because by reading these examples and, and really getting to see the principles behind, uh, you become much more uh, efficient when you have to make decisions. Because otherwise, uh, we tend to get uh, lost in the details of our daily uh, strife, and uh, we lose sight of the principles. And the principles, they are the same today as they were uh, two centuries, five centuries ago. Yeah, see, that, that's very good. Now, this, I think, this would be a good time. And we have a lot of things to cover in our time together. This is why I'm so excited about having the opportunity to sit down and speak with you here for a little bit. Is I think this would be a great time to transition into the 80-20 principle and how do we make sure it doesn't mislead us. So tell us, uh, how does the 80-20 principle mislead us, and how do we avoid that? Well, we can be easily misled because if you take um, uh, the 80-20 principle in an extreme way, uh, it means basically that uh, many things are not going to get done or they are going to barely get done at all. Because you say, okay, look, these are my main customers, uh, this is my uh, main source of profit, I'm going to focus on this and all the rest, uh, I'm very sorry, but I'm not going to put resources into that. And this is very dangerous. Because um, what makes an operation successful, a business, or I would say even the life of a person, is that uh, all the steps, uh, the important and the less important, they are well connected, they are consistent, and they are all made smoothly and with quality. And if you say, you, you take this uh, harsh philosophy, say, look, I'm going to focus on the 80% and the 20%, I'm very sorry, they will take care of themselves. And most of the time, it's very unrealistic. It's like you, you take a car and you say, okay, let's focus on the engine and the brakes, uh, and the rest uh, is really not so important. No, everything is important for the experience of the customer. So the 80-20 principle, I mean, it's a nice uh, statistical, um, um, I would say, insight, 
but uh, whatever you are doing with the business or, or uh, some kind of um, uh, you're involved in relationships or you want to build uh, your network, you have to be careful because everything counts and even if it's a small thing. So uh, I think um, it's very important not to be misled by the 80-20 principles or this kind of uh, um, productivity um, short-term um, insights because it can destroy your business if you really imagine that you buy a car and after a couple of weeks uh, the, the mirrors uh, fall apart. I mean, you wouldn't right. care less about the engine, you, uh, and then you get an impression that uh, the whole car is going to fall apart. And it's not 80-20. Uh, I mean, everything has to, has to work together. You know, what popped into my mind, I was just thinking of this. This is going back a few years. Uh, one of my clients uh, that we do some copywriting for, uh, we had planned an email sequence for them as part of a promotion they were doing. And there were, I believe, if I remember correctly, there were five emails in the sequence. And I made a note to the client, uh, and he picked up on it, where I said, email number two, we don't expect to sell anything from. And he came back and said, well, then why the hell are we send sending it if we're not going to sell anything? That's stupid. I only want to send emails one, three, four, and five then. But the point was being missed. Although email number two, we didn't expect to make many or any sales from, it was part of the overall conversation that helps the other emails sell more. And I had to explain that to him. And once he, I did, he sort of got it. Uh, it was one of those, you know, you're the expert, do what you want to do type things. But that would be, in my mind, an example of what you just said. So we're looking at the, the 20%, say, for instance, it gets 80% of the results. So taking the 80-20 approach, we could say dump email number two. But that can be misleading because without email number two, email numbers three, four, and five might not be as effective. So that is, to me, an example of being short-sighted. Am I getting that right? Yeah, perfectly right. And I just want to give you an example from history um, about people applying this kind of logic. And uh, let me just talk for a second about um, uh, a chess player, Bobby Fischer, who was a world champion in the, in the 1970s. Uh, this was a guy who was extremely intelligent. Uh, he was, um, of course, um, a very um, outstanding uh, chess player. But he was, he was amazing in a way because he was young, he was uh, very much uh, fit, very much uh, well-spoken. But uh, at a certain point when he became famous and he won the, the world championship, uh, he started to think a bit uh, like this 80-20 uh, thing and say, okay, look, I'm a, the best chess player in the world. Uh, I can uh, do whatever I want. I have sponsors. I have uh, publicity. I have uh, TV shows. So I, I don't need to, to take care of the rest. And he started uh, a small fight. At the beginning, it was a small fight with the Chess Federation because he started to, uh, to, to quarrel about uh, the rules for the next um, uh, World Championship. It was really a stupid uh, discussion whether how many points you have to make. I mean, it was really a joke. But the guy said, look, I can do whatever we want because I have my business under control. I have the 80%, which is uh, my performance. He was the best in the world. But he um, actually um, underappreciated the importance of the other 20%. He started to fight with the Chess Federation. Then he started to fight uh, with the federal government about taxes. Uh, he left the U.S. He went to play uh, chess in Serbia when it was an embargo by the U.S. 
and then he was on the list of the FBI. So eventually, within a few months, the guy destroyed his life completely because he still was, uh, yes, his 80% was the best in the world, but he was completely mismanagement the, the little things. And after a couple of years, uh, he was uh, prosecuted, uh, he was uh, arrested in the airport, uh, he was uh, put in jail in Japan, and it was really a terrible story from a very brilliant person because he, uh, he had this idea that you don't need to take care of the little details, and he made such a huge mess that uh, he, in the end, he never was able to come back to the U.S. So you have to be careful with this mentality because uh, everything is important in a business. You have to get the marketing right, you have to get the operations, you have to get the taxes right, and you have to get uh, your staff policies right. And maybe you don't need to do everything perfectly, but everything needs to be done to an acceptable level. Wow, I did not know that about Bobby Fischer. I had no idea that he went into that spiral. That is news to me. Well, um, many people don't remember the story because you only remember the, when he was on the, on the front page of news, Newsweek. But, uh, yeah, the guy destroyed his life, so in the end uh, he ended up uh, in exile. He lived his last uh, 13 years on an island in uh, Iceland. Uh, because they gave him asylum and he lived there for uh, 13 years in a small island. Uh, basically, uh, he spent the rest of his life uh, reading books about history, I, I guess uh, trying to catch up uh, with the principles he never got in the first place. And uh, it's, a, it's a very sad story, but uh, this is a mistake as a businessman you have to avoid. Don't assume that you don't need to take care of it or details because they will come, they will come back to bite you. Right. That is that is quite a story. And I mean, yeah, if we if we're looking at a raw eighty twenty approach, Bobby Fisher could just look at, hey, I'm the best chess player in the world and I'm really good at playing chess, so I'm just gonna focus on my chess game. But then he's making all kinds of money playing chess and he doesn't have his financials in line and the federal government comes after him because uh, you know what they say, there are only two things in life that are certain, death and taxes, and even after you die, you'll still pay. Yes, indeed, um, and uh, it is important uh, not to get also too much stressed uh, because of these uh, productivity theories, because um, right. if you get, this, if you get uh, the direction right and you work uh, patiently every day to build your business, there is a lot of margin for mistakes. And uh, history shows uh, over and over again that uh, if you build assets uh, for the long term, uh, you can deal with a lot of mistakes. Even if you make uh, huge mistakes, um, if you get the direction right, uh, you will eventually solve them. And I can give you a few examples from history that show that um, getting the fundamental things right uh, should be your foremost priority. Otherwise, uh, we get lost with the constant flow of new apps, uh, new tricks, new hacks that uh, they, may, they may save you a few minutes here or there, but they are not going to fix your life. Right. And, you know, I think now is a good time uh, if we could transition. Uh, you know, we're talking about, uh, you know, the balance between 80 and 20 and how to make sure that we don't get misled by that. And we've talked spoken about uh, the balance between, uh, you know, taking shortcuts and being efficient and why the shortcuts fail. 
So let's broaden this a little bit and get into the importance of leading a balanced life. Now, John, you have some very unique insights here, and I have been greatly educated by you just in the less than 30 minutes we've been together so far. Um, our listeners know that I'm not only the host, but I'm also a student looking for the slight edge in my business and life. So I want to hear John Vespasian's take on why it's important to lead a balanced life. Well, um, first we have to define balance. Because uh, when we say balance, most people uh, believe that uh, it's like an allocation, like, I don't know, 30-30-30. Or so you have to like work 30% uh, of the time and then uh, to have 30% uh, for your family. 30% for sleep. I mean, something like this, which is uh, mathematical. Uh, right. This is not what I mean by balance. What I mean by balance, and I devoted a whole book to that, what I mean by balance is that um, the fundamental patterns uh, of your life, the fundamental areas, they are consistent and they are well proportioned to your goals, which does not mean that uh, they should be 33, 33, 33 to make 100. Uh, because, for instance, uh, if you are putting a lot of effort trying to build a new business and you are working uh, 12 hours per day, uh, maybe this is the right proportion for you. The important thing is that uh, this balance or this proportion, the important thing is that it's sustainable. It has to be consistent and it has to be sustainable. It does not mean that you must have the same uh, allocation of time and resources as your neighbor or your friends. Uh, if you have different goals, if you have a different background, if you are dealing with uh, different circumstances, your allocation might be different. The important thing is that you make it consistent and you make it sustainable. That's a very interesting topic because, yeah, we, you know, we hear about this so-called work-life balance. And I say so-called for a reason because how do you really define that? And as you said, John, some folks look for the mathematical equation. So I'm going to spend eight hours of sleep, eight hours of work, and eight hours of not doing work. Now, I make the point about entrepreneurs, and I've been told so many times that uh, I have no work-life balance, and all I do is work, and, uh, and I should get a job and get a life or something like that. But here's how I look at it. Sometimes it may be Saturday night, and here I am working. But there may be those Wednesday afternoons, where I just don't feel like it, and there's no, there are no deadlines on my plate, and I'm good with all my projects and my marketing and everything. So I say, you know what, it's Wednesday afternoon, I'm heading out. That's it, I'm done. That's good by me. Now let's say you, know, we're, you, know, we're, you and I are having this conversation here right now, and uh, let's say that right in the middle of our conversation, something happened, I bit down on something, and my tooth broke. So my tooth breaks, and now I'm in all kinds of pain and everything else. Now, one version of work-life balance holds that, well, you've got to wait till the third of your life where you're supposed to be doing self-care and try and find a dentist appointment. But no, no, I am the captain of my ship and the arbiter of my destiny as an entrepreneur and as the owner of my business. If my tooth breaks and I'm all of a sudden in a lot of pain, what I'm going to do immediately is I'm going to find the nearest dentist that can put me in a chair this afternoon and get it fixed. I'm not going to be waiting until the weekend and taking pain pills and all that. I'm going to fix the problem. So to me, having the ability to do that is balance, whereas other people might look at it as, well, you work from 9 to 5, and therefore you only work 8 hours, so you're balanced. I don't see it that way. Yes, fair enough, and um, we have to realize also that uh, the balance um, or the, the proportion, the allocation of resources and time, 
uh, depends very much on, uh, on your priorities. And let me give you an example. Um, for most people, uh, for instance, uh, longevity is not uh, a priority. I mean, they don't organize their lives or their, um, I would say, their lifestyle in a way that, say, I'm going to become as older as possible, uh, which might be a goal. It might be a priority for some people. Say, look, otherwise you would just watch your meals. Uh, you would maybe do more exercise. Uh, you might try to live in a place with uh, less pollution. And if this is your priority, you organize your life in this particular way, uh, hopefully, if you get everything right, you become very old, you become 80, 90, uh, 100, uh, uh, who knows. But for most people, it's not, uh, it's not the first priority. But uh, it can be. And let me give you an example from history. Uh, there was a guy um, in the 17th century. His name was uh, Thomas Parr. Uh, you, you might have heard the name because uh, there is a whiskey brand uh, called uh, Thomas Parr, old Thomas Parr. And this is a guy who was very old. He was, uh, according to, the, to, the, to history, he was 150 years old, and he was living in a village uh, in England, and the guy was living on vegetables, uh, bread, and cheese, and that was his diet. And he's been doing this for years. Uh, he got up very early. He went with his sheep uh, to the mountain, and then he, he had his lunch and his dinner. And it was a very boring life, but the guy uh, had a very uh, balanced life because this was his world, this was his, world his life, his, um, his habits. But then um, uh, the king of England heard about this uh, Thomas Parr and said, oh, I want to, uh, I want to meet this guy because uh, uh, maybe I can learn uh, how to become very old. So he invited, uh, the king invited uh, Thomas Parr to London uh, to come to visit, and, and the, the old uh, Thomas Parr was delighted. So he went to London, and they, they put him on, uh, on the palace. They gave him all kinds of uh, banquets and food and drink and wine and French champagne, and this Thomas Parr, he died within two days because he could not cope uh, with uh, high living. He could not cope uh, with uh, great food. He could not cope uh, with, a, with an irregular life. And this is why um, I want to emphasize that whatever you do has to be sustainable, and it has to be in line with your goals. And if your goal is to become very old, you will have very different uh, life allocation, time allocation, than someone who wants to build a business or who wants to become uh, a pop uh, singer or wants to become an actor. I mean, his priorities are going to be different. His allocation of resources and time is going to be different. Uh, his uh, ability and his willingness to, uh, to take risk is going to be different. It is not better or worse. It's just different. Yeah, I love that phrase. It's not better or worse. It's just different because you gave the example. And I actually heard about that guy. He uh, he was well over 100 years old. He lived out in the country. He was a shepherd, and he ate a very basic vegetarian diet. Take him out of that environment and give him the so-called finer things in life, and he just couldn't handle it because it was off his balance. Uh, here's, here's, an, I mean, here's an example just from my own life. I recently got rid of a lot of my furniture. And uh, and I when I told people I got rid of the furniture, they said, well, what happens when you have people over? Well, I don't have people over. I'm not the type that has people over. I'm the type that goes other places. That's number one. And number two, uh, we have to look at it from the perspective of, you know, it's my space. It's the space where I live, and I'm looking for a certain amount of balance in that space. And what makes me feel better it makes me feel more content, like I have more balance in the physical surroundings of where I live, is when there's a lot of open space. So I'm happy 
that there's there's only one third of the amount of furniture in the living room that there used to be because I get enjoyment and I get pleasure out of the fact that it's basically a big open room now. That works for me. So that, that's another thing that goes back to what is the definition of balance, and that's why I knew you had a unique perspective on this because before we talk about leading a balanced life, we have to define what balance is for ourselves. That's perfectly fine. And I want to also underline that um, whatever allocation of, uh, of time and resources you choose, uh, one principle that uh, we have to learn from history, because it's something that I really present in my books uh, repeatedly, because it's totally uh, counterintuitive, that um, whatever your goals and, and uh, time allocation, you have to always uh, keep a margin of error, margin of safety, because you are going to make mistakes. And even if you are very clever, if you, even if you take the 80-20 principle to the limit, you will make mistakes because you will not have all the information. And whatever you do in business, in life, in relationships, in, in your hobbies, always keep a margin of safety, always keep some savings, always keep some, uh, some area, some margin where you can make mistakes. Because if you play, uh, as you hear every day in movies, in pop songs, in, uh, in novels, uh, you, you get the message continuously, yeah, just do it, just do it, just do it, go for it, go for it. If you take uh -huh. the philosophy, which is very simplistic, it's very dangerous. You should always keep some margin for mistakes. I can give you uh, plenty of examples of people who follow this uh, foolish uh, approach. I think it's good to take risk, but it's also good uh, to be careful. And uh, you have to be uh, prudent and you have to have some insight about the future because uh, being foolish usually is a bad policy. Yeah, and I have seen so many things crash and burn in the name of just do it, or just say, uh, or shall we say, to just, you know, to leap, what have you. Now, there is a counterpoint to that, and one of my own mentors um, has actually just recently released a book called Just Say Yes. And one of the principles is, is that you, um, is, is that if you want success in life, there comes a time where you just need to jump off the cliff and sprout the wings as you go down. Now, that's well and good, but at the same time, uh, what I, you also get out of his reading is you need to have the right information at your fingertips. You have, the, you have to have the ability to calibrate while in flight, and you have to have the ability to be flexible and make the necessary adjustments while keeping focused on the goal. And that's how you sprout your wings as you come down. Uh, now, see, that's a measured approach. That's a balanced approach, which is different from what I see out there sometimes when people just leap uh, without having any plan, just saying, oh, the universe will take care of it. Yeah, the universe takes care of a lot of people. How many people die every day? Yes, indeed. And let me, <clears throat> let me get, since you are mentioning the wings uh, and jumping with the wings, let me give you an example of the wings, which is a real example. Uh, this is a story of uh, Berlinger, who lived, uh, lived in, the in the 19th century. And you might have never heard the, the name, but he's very famous in Germany because he was the first guy who actually was able to fly with wings. And this Berlinger, who was, um, who was a tailor, actually, he, um, he learned uh, to be a tailor because he was an orphan. And he went to the Catholic Church. He got uh, a traineeship to become a tailor. He became a tailor, but he was a very creative guy. He was always coming up with business ideas. And uh, during the war uh, between uh, France and, uh, and Germany, he came up with the idea of uh, making uh, limbs uh, for people who were injured in the war. So he made uh, articulated limbs 
so that uh, the soldiers could actually um, put these limbs and actually flex uh, their legs. But he, he was not uh, making money with the business. So in the end, he came up with the idea of, uh, of flying. And the idea of flying with wings uh, is actually from the Middle Ages, because even Leonardo da Vinci uh, designed some wings. But it's actually very difficult to do. Uh, this guy in the, in the 19th century is the first guy who actually managed to fly because uh, he was a tailor. He was very good with his hands. And he, uh, he built uh, huge wings uh, with very light uh, materials, with light wood. He used textiles, and he very, very carefully he was able to sew the, um, the textile around the wings. So in the end, he made these wings. And he practiced uh, for uh, very, several months, jumping from uh, roofs, uh, jumping from house to house. So in the end, his neighbors were amazed that this guy was able to, to fly. And uh, he was so uh, sure of his business that he wanted to, uh, to show the whole world that he was able to fly. So he called the, the king of Bavaria and the nobles, and he called everybody to come on Good Friday to see him jump from the tower of the, of the, of the city. It was the city of Ulm in Germany. So the guy had been uh, practicing for months. He flied um, many times. So he, he climbed the tower, and all the people were there and watching him, saying, well, he's going to crash, he's going to crash. He said, no, no, I'm not going to crash. I really tested this very many times. So he jumped from the tower with his wings, uh, ready to fly and ready to, uh, to amaze everybody and to sell his uh, idea to the, to the army. And he crashed uh, miserably uh, against the river. Because the guy didn't know that if you fly over a cold area, uh, you cannot really uh, go up with the wings. And uh, he, he tried uh, many times to fly, but he never tried over the river. So he jumped from the, from the tower next to the river. The air was very cold, and the guy crashed, and his career was destroyed. Nobody ever paid any attention to him because he put all his resources and all his future on one thing. And uh, he made uh, the mistake of going for it without really testing uh, what he was going to do. So in the end, uh, the first example, the real example of a guy flying, uh, in the end he crashed and disappeared. Uh, we have to learn from the story that it's very dangerous uh, to play everything on one card, and it's very dangerous to engage on something that is not fully tested. So always, always keep some reserves. Wow. Yeah, that that's... And, and see, what I love about your approach, John, is uh, how we draw these lessons from history. Because I found in understanding in business and understanding life that looking at things that happened historically is a great place to draw inspiration and draw the lessons. Because we see the trailblazers, those who made it through, and those who kind of flamed out, uh, for lack of a better phrase. And we get to see these examples that we can follow. So what I'd like to do now is, uh, you know, we're uh, about 40 minutes into this thing. This time is really flying here. And, uh, you know, you take a little bit of a contrarian view on something here, and I'd, I'd love to hear this. Uh, you warn your listeners, you warn us that unbridled positive thinking can severely mess up your life. We always hear about how we have to be positive all the time. So tell us, how can we screw up our lives by being unbridledly positive? Well, it is, um, it is very dangerous to be positive uh, by principle. So I'm going to be positive no matter what. This is very dangerous because um, it can easily uh, push you in the wrong direction. Because say, if you say, okay, I'm going to become uh, enthusiastic, I'm going to be positive, I'm going to be uh, optimistic in any case, 
uh, you might be going in the wrong direction, you might be making mistakes, very severe mistakes, you might be damaging your health, you might be um, uh, damaging your finances, and if you don't get feedback from reality because you are so optimistic, you are so um, into your mind that you don't pay attention to the facts, you might be great, you might be doing uh, yourself a great uh, disservice. And this is why I, I, I present many examples in my books that it is much more important uh, to be realistic, to be a bit uh, cool-headed, to be um, uh, accurate, to be alert. It is much more important than being just uh, blindly optimistic because it is great to be optimistic and to have uh, ambitions, to have goals. This is perfectly fine, but you should never keep your eyes off the, off the ball because um, just uh, pretending that everything is fine when it's not fine, you're just fooling yourself. Uh, you might be feeling very important, you might be feeling very, um, um, I would say, very optimistic and very positive, but it's very dangerous because uh, it's, it's much better to be realistic and to discover that uh, you need to correct some mistakes, which uh, is always uh, psychologically difficult. It is much more courageous to do that than to pretend that uh, I'm positive, I'm positive, I'm positive, I'm going to make it, and you destroy your life, you destroy your finances, you destroy your health, because you have stopped paying attention to reality. Yeah, um, I'm a big believer in uh, having a clear windshield. I'm a big believer in looking for the positives when they're available. Uh, at the same time, I'm also... I also have two other things that I think are very important, which is having, as you said, a realistic view of what's going on, but also, uh, and this goes to back a little bit to balance and what I consider balance for myself, which doesn't have to be anybody else's balance but mine, is I decide when I want to gain information about certain things that may not be positive or that may not be something that's going to be all that enlightening in the interest of being informed, in the interest of being realistic. So I maintain a balance around that. I mean, right now, you and I are sitting down on the Business Creators Radio Show. We're having this fantastic conversation. Then I got a couple of client things I got to do. Then I got some things to do for my own marketing. I don't want to be distracted by the so-called news while any of that's going on. At the end of me being done with that, I'll check in and see what's going on in the world. Uh, because again, uh, so much of that is negative, but I, you know, and I, but I don't want to ignore it either because there could be some useful information there. But I decide when I'm going to consume it. That's, um, that's I think, is a good idea. And I would like to give you as an example from uh, one of the stories that I tell in my books, uh, because right. I think that uh, to be to be uh, happy and to be successful, uh, it is much more important to have uh, good systems. And to have uh, resilience, I think, is much more important than to be uh, to be always with a smile on your face. We sometimes might be even a bit crazy. So I want to give you an example of uh, one of my heroes uh, from history, and he's a guy who became uh, very successful and very happy, I would say, uh, without uh, any positive thinking. And uh, his name was uh, Howard Carter, and he lived in the early uh, 20th century. Uh, he was the most famous. Uh, he's the most famous uh, archaeologist in history because. He, uh, he found, uh, in Egypt, he found uh, the tomb of uh, Tutankhamun, who was a, a pharaoh from the ancient Egypt. And what is fascinating about uh, Carter is that, Carter, is that uh, he spent uh, 10 years of his life making holes in the ground in Egypt. I mean, uh, the, the temperature is very, very hot. 
uh, you cannot work during the summer, it's only during the winter you can work. And the guy, um, he has spent his life in the desert making holes every, every two meters, uh, trying to find this, uh, this lost uh, pharaoh. And what is fascinating about Carter is that everybody in the world, every professor, every professional, every Egyptologist was telling him that he was crazy. Say, Howard, you will never find anything because everything has been already found. I mean, we're talking early 20th century. Uh, people thought uh, that he was crazy because uh, it, it is impossible. Everything has been found. And the question is, how did Carter manage to, um, to continue for 10 years without any positive thinking? Because at that moment, first of all, there was no positive thinking. It has not invented. It was not invented yet. And everybody was telling him he was crazy. And the answer of the story, the answer to the question is that uh, Carter managed to, uh, to maintain his uh, persistence, to maintain his motivation for these 10 years of a very lonely enterprise. He managed his, to keep his, uh, his drive because he was very rational. He checked uh, the sources for the, for the pharaohs, for the ancient uh, Egyptian uh, uh, writings, hieroglyphics. He learned to read uh, ancient Egyptians, ancient Egyptian, and he found the sources um, from different uh, writers that uh, they told him that the tomb of Tutankhamun has to be in that area. And he found the different sources from different areas and from different, from different times. Uh, he was sure of his, uh, of his uh, conviction. And even if the rest of the world was opposing him and telling him he was crazy, he had the, a rational basis for his, uh, for his uh, enterprise. So in the end, he succeeded because uh, he didn't have uh, positive thinking, but he had the facts. And it's very important that uh, you have the facts and you have a system uh, for getting there. Uh, Carter had the facts right, and he had the system, because he knew that if he made holes every two meters, eventually he will find it. And eventually he found it uh, the very last uh, week when he was running out of money. He found what he was looking for, and he became extremely famous, extremely successful, and extremely happy. Wow, yeah, that is quite a story of persistence there. And, yeah, I mean, if you look at even today, people are saying, well, there's really nothing else to be found. We've done all the archaeological digging, and uh, you're not going to find any new buried treasures or anything like that. But they still keep turning up. But what we see in his case is he wasn't just tilting at windmills. He put in the diligence. He was studying ancient languages to find clues where this treasure was buried. I mean, that's not that's not just leaping off the cliff and hoping you don't go splat. That's having a plan. Just having a plan and um, having, uh, I would say, the the coolness, the 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 peace of mind to be able to continue in the face of uh, massive criticism. And this is something that uh, I think marks uh, successful entrepreneurs because they will make mistakes anyway but they will be able to, uh, to overcome those mistakes uh, by keeping their vision in front of them, uh, by thinking long-term, um, by, um, I would say, ignoring uh, malevolous criticism. And this is something that uh, Carter did very well. I think it's one of my favorite examples in my books uh, because it shows you uh, in times of uh, loneliness, adversity, uh, opposition, that if you have the fact right, and if you are focused on something that uh, has a future, you should continue to remain uh, calm and you should continue to work because eventually you will make it. Yeah, and it's very important to 
um, learn to handle criticism properly. Uh, I mean, it's one thing if you have a business like a retail business or some kind of uh, service business where you could get some negative comments on Yelp or something like that and knowing how to respond to that. Uh, that's, that's one thing. But when you have people randomly coming out of the blue and wanting to just tear you down, I had a case of this once, John. Uh, this is about seven years ago, I think. Is uh, I, uh, yeah, I had this person used to follow me around on LinkedIn. Um, they wanted to think they were a competitor of mine, but the fact is they weren't really a competitor. They just wanted to pretend like they were. And they would find things where I would comment um, in discussion groups and just start arguments with me. And, fi and finally, I just told this person, you know, you, I have not seen a single thing of merit come from you in terms of how you serve any business creator, any entrepreneur, any anything. All you seem to do is follow me around just so you can attack me and start stupid arguments over the technical meaning of a word at merriamwebster.com. So I have nothing further to say to you. Uh, you can comment all you want, and I'm just going to keep repeating that I have nothing to say to you. And she went away. Uh, a couple years later, I found out, uh, you know, just for giggles, I went back to her, her crappy third-rate website that she thought was going to take my website down, found out that she didn't even own the domain anymore, and it was a really crappy domain anyway. And I found out that she had moved on to, um, to, to real estate, which is a, a fine profession. So, John... Sometimes the empire strikes back. And so what um, I did is I did reach out to her, and I did ask her about, um, about uh, investment opportunities in real estate in Chicago. And I added, because my business consulting business has been working out so great lately, I have all kinds of discretionary income. She didn't answer that. <laughs> well, um, I think it's a very nice story because uh, – <clears throat> It happens very often that uh, people become focused on um, on other people. They just try to take right. them down, try to imitate them, and this is not the way to be successful because uh, whatever you do, uh, you can only compare yourself with yourself. I mean, um, right. you have your own life. You eventually, uh, every every one of us will eventually die, and the important thing is that uh, when your day comes, you can look back and say, okay, I did my best. I think I did uh, I did what I have to do. Uh, maybe I was not as successful as I wanted to do, but I did my best. I tried my best, and then I can I can I can rest in peace. And this is the, this is the goal: uh, to look at your life uh, one day, to look back and say, "Look, I did what I have to do, and I focus on my own life. I tried to do the best, and I I didn't waste time comparing myself with other people that have uh, different backgrounds, different circumstances, different opportunities. This is a complete waste of time." And uh, it's very unfortunate that our culture is uh, so much based on, uh, on celebrities. Um, people become very depressed because they compare themselves uh, to uh, other persons who have nothing to do with them, nothing to do with them. Right. And they look at these celebrities and say, oh, my God, I will never be so great as uh, X. And they become depressed, and then they get medication, and they become completely dysfunctional. Right. Uh, and I see... And I see that. And I also see folks who become so wrapped up emotionally in uh, things that, you know, like maybe uh, news items or political items or something like that, that actually have nothing to do with them whatsoever. But they will literally allow it to dominate all of their thoughts and all of their life to the point where they become really 
you know, I, I, I don't even know what to say about it other than, uh, I mean, I, I mean, you said yourself, unbridled positive thinking can severely mess up your life. But I would also say that unbridled negative thinking and obsessing can severely mess up your life, too. Uh, is, is that that makes sense? That makes uh, perfect sense. And um, I have, in these cases, a very practical recommendation. I think uh, most people who complain about um, their environment, their circumstances, and uh, this happens very, very often, uh, we have to look back in ancient history, and I always uh, mention um, a quotation from Plato, Plato, uh, the ancient Greek philosopher, because he got the same question from his uh, from his students, from his disciples. They look, Plato, uh, I'm fed up. I cannot uh, get ahead. There are few opportunities. Uh, everything is bad. And they hear these complaints and say, Look, uh, if you are unhappy in this city uh, because you have no opportunities, and maybe it's true, the solution. The easy solution, the practical solution, most of the time, is to move. To move physically to a place where you have better opportunities, where you're happier, uh, where you can find uh, something which is closer to your taste. There are many cities and many countries where you can choose to live. Uh, don't be uh, obsessed by the negative things in your environment. Because if you're really unhappy, it's better to move and to build your life uh, in a place which is uh, closer to your taste. And nowadays, millions of people do that very successfully. So we should not be uh, obsessed uh, with uh, problems in our environment because it is up to us to choose our best uh, opportunities. You know, that's, I went through that a few years ago myself. I uh, was born and raised in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area and lived the uh, first 10, 15 years of my adult life there. And it got to a point where I realized I wasn't built for cold weather. I don't want to live in a place where it's overcast three months out of the year and I and I lose out on energy from the sun. Uh, you know the, the you know the culture there is okay, I guess, but it wasn't exactly what I want to immerse myself in. And what I noticed is I was spending a lot of time traveling to places like Las Vegas, Los Angeles, San Diego, and Phoenix. And every time I traveled to one of those cities. It felt like I was going home. But then when I traveled back to the place where I lived, it felt like I was going out of town. So it occurred to me, why not just move to one of those places? I picked Las Vegas because it, you know, if you look at it on a map, it's kind of like a hub where the other three cities go out on spokes that are five hours out in any driving direction. And just in terms of what's available here to do, what the culture's like, what the economy's like, what the weather's like. It's just more my speed. Uh, once I thought that through, I had no particular reason to, uh, you know, to, wor to worry about it or anything like that. You know, people did ask, well, are you sure you can move away from the place where you grew up, where your, your, your family is and everything else? That was very easy for me to do. Very easy for me to do. Uh, well, it's, and 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 I and I think and I think for some folks, if they're listening, they may come up with reasons why. Well, I can't do that because it would take me three years to get my business going, or find another job, or sell my house and buy another house, or to get my kids ready to go, or something like that. And my answer to them, John, and I want to get your thoughts on this is: Well, if it's going to take you three years, you might as well start today because if you wait till tomorrow, it's going to take you three years in one day. So get a move on. 
Um, yes, but uh, I also acknowledge that uh, it's very difficult to take this kind of decisions because uh, if you don't know exactly what you're going to get or you don't know um, uh, your, your skills, you don't really know your strengths, uh, sometimes it's very, very harsh uh, for someone to say, okay, I'm going to, to move to another place. So I want to, to give you another piece of advice for those cases, which I, I present right. in my books. And, and if the, the, the option, I think the best option, uh, when you don't know what to do, because it happens um, uh, to millions of people that they have problems, they have uh, challenges, we have challenges, and very often we don't know what to do because if you read a personal development book, the answer is always the same. You have to be positive, you have to have a goal, you have to implement your plans. But what happens if you have no clear goal? What happens if you have no plan? What happens if you have uh, so many problems that uh, you don't even know where to start? And there is a yeah. piece of advice I got um, also from a chess player, a chess player from the 1920s. His name was Nisovic. And Linsovich yeah. uh, was able to win uh, consistently against uh, very, very uh, strong players. And he seemed like very passive, like a guy who never did actually anything. And when people asked yeah. him for his secret, I said, look, how is it possible that uh, you can win almost all the time and uh, you, you don't seem to do anything? You don't seem to take any initiative. And say, said, look, this is not the way it is. What happens is that uh, I, I recognize that uh, my chess plays, my, my games are sometimes very, very difficult to figure out, very confusing. I don't know what to do. Yeah. So what did Nisovic do? In situations where he didn't know what to do, what, what he did was to reinforce his strengths. He spent uh, move after move just to get his position a little bit stronger. He became... Uh, every move a bit, a bit stronger, a bit, a bit stronger. He removed his weaknesses, so in the end he always won. Because he, they had basically the other, the other contenders, uh, they, they made mistakes and they, they became weaker. So if you don't know what to do in life, in your business, or in your life, or in your relationships, or in your health, the first thing you have to do is to reinforce your position, to reinforce your strengths, to cut yeah. out, to stop the bleeding. And later on you can figure out uh, whether you want to move uh, elsewhere, you want to stay there, but first try to reinforce your strengths because eventually it will make it stronger, it will make you stronger, and it will make you able uh, to choose opportunities um, that otherwise uh, you will miss completely. Absolutely. And we have 90 seconds left here. Time is really flying. So what I'd like to do is turn 30 of those seconds over to you. Tell us a little bit about your new book and where somebody can pick it up. Well, it's very easy to find uh, my books, my blog, my newsletter. I have a free newsletter. It's very easy to find everything. All you need to do is just go to Google or to Yahoo, whatever uh, search engine you use. You just type my name, uh, John Vespasian. John Vespasian, you type it on Google. You will find everything in one second. It's super easy to find. Just type John Vespasian on any search engine, and you will find everything immediately. Yeah, John, um, I just want to say, you know, I, what I love most about our interview today is your historical approach, and I look forward to downloading and buying your book, Thriving in Difficult Times, 12 Lessons from Ancient Greece to Improve Your Life Today. So, John Vespasian, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor and an education. Many thanks, Adam. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks. You bet. And for everybody listening, this is Adam Homey, host of the Business Creators Radio Show. Please check out our previous and our upcoming episodes at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com where we help you win at the game of business and marketing. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.